Hello and welcome back to the Two Kinky Women podcast where we dish about everything kink. I am your co-host, Midnight Lady, and my partner is Mistress Gabrielle. We have an amazing, awesome guest uh, on the podcast today, and I am going to leave it to my partner, Mistress Gabrielle, to introduce our special guest. Thank you, Midnight Lady. Here we are. Yeah, we do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, episode. So let's get started. Today, we're very honored to have as our guest an author, columnist, sex educator, activist, editor, speaker, radio host, television host, pornographic film director, and pornographic actress. Now, who else could we be talking about but... Tristan Terramino. Welcome, Tristan. So glad to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, one of the things that we're uh, going to talk about today, one of the very, very exciting things that is going to be happening um, in October, which is, uh, I guess, the day you're going to be hearing this, October 1st, 2023, is Tristan's memoir is going to be published. And the name of her memoir, which will be published is a part of the heart can't be eaten and uh when i heard that title i thought to myself wow what is that about but i'll maybe we'll get to that uh, a little bit later in our conversation or maybe we'll leave that as a surprise but the book will be released in september and uh our podcast will be a good way for you to get the great 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 intro to get started Let's talk very, very briefly about the fact that uh, our guest today is very, very well known. She uh, was the only child of a couple out in um, Long Island, okay? Her parents divorced before she was uh, two years old, as I understand it. She's also the um, uh, author, uh, I'm sorry, the niece of uh, a very, very famous author and uh, a descendant of a very, very well-known um, special historical family on Long Island. And uh, Tristan um, went to college in, um, I guess, Wesleyan, where was that? Massachusetts? In Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay, close. And uh, graduated from college in 93 and then started writing books. You may know her as the author of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. That's how I know her. And uh, she's also done some other wonderful things like um, uh, a kinky guide for beginners. And uh, believe it or not, was a sex columnist in the Village Voice for ages. So let's start. Tristan, one of the things, the big theme about the book is the fact that um, uh, someone mentioned to you, I guess maybe over 20 years ago or so, that you should write a memoir and you should write about having a gay dad. So here we are over 20 years later. What got you started writing at this stage? Yeah, so that's a little story in the acknowledgments of the book that um, probably 20 years ago, I knew I wanted to write this book and actually an agent contacted me who is still my book agent to this day, which is crazy. 
Um, and, you know, that there was a part of as soon while it was all happening, I was completely sort of overwhelmed by my father getting AIDS and then dying. And it's obviously one of the biggest events in my life. Um, I was only 24 when he died and which I just consider still a baby. I think my brain wasn't fully formed. Um, and so while it was happening, I was just sort of in the moment and then reflecting back on it several years later, I thought I want to write about this, but the truth is I was terrified. I mean, I've written so much about myself out in the world. Um, and it's been very explicit. It's been super sexual. It's been very personal. I did that for almost 10 years in the Village Voice. So it's like, you can read about me, you know, like, and why I love enemas and enema play. <laughs> right? And so my mom and all our relatives can read that too. Um, but to me, I wanted to cover ground in the book that I hadn't written about publicly, that I hadn't talked about publicly. And um, that had a lot to do with the death of my father, also my own mental health challenges. So it was hard. I think I needed a certain amount of distance from it before I felt ready to tackle it. Sure, sure, absolutely. So you waited quite a while to do it, but um, for sure, um, uh I guess that was definitely a good thing because it's 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 just so very very touching that you talk about the um, the times that you spent with your dad having um, uh, having him not with you on a daily basis starting when you were very young two years old and um, and such but you stayed very very connected and there is no doubt that he was very much um, uh, your dad. You loved him. He absolutely loved you. No question about it. Now, you mentioned, of course, dad passed uh, because of AIDS. And um, you talk about the fact that um, uh, in the book, you found out he was gay from another kid. Um, he was younger than you were. Um, I guess uh, um, a youngster, an adolescent. You were a little bit older. And it came as a shock. It really did. So you found out about it, and um, you talk a little bit about in the book uh, about how you felt. And in fact, it's rather a, um, um, a shock to you. My dad is gay. My dad is gay. Wow. Tell us a little bit how that was, um, finding out and reconciling. Yeah, you know, looking back on it, I just felt super naive because there were some telltale signs, you know, if there can be telltale signs of gayness, like they were there. But, um, and, and the thing is, both my parents had gay friends, right? So I knew gay people from the time I was born, they had close friends who were gay, who were openly gay. And so I knew gay people, like it wasn't like I, you know, I was living in some very isolated community where I just didn't even know gay people existed. I knew gay people existed. It just never occurred to me that my dad was one of them. And so I think, you know, looking back, like the story that I tell is, is really funny, I think, because it's like so startling. And then it was like, and then it like comes into full, you know, focus. And it's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And you know, at that point, I mean, I'm a third wave feminist, you know, I was born in the 70s. 
at that point, I, I didn't know anyone who had a gay dad, right? I, I knew I knew maybe one person who had a gay relative. Um, and so it wasn't like the age of, you know, collage was this nonprofit that came later that was for families of gay and lesbian people or parents, gay and lesbian parents, I don't remember. Um, but all that came much later. I really felt like I was like out on an island. Like what, oh, wow, I have a gay parent. Like, what does this mean? And I think the trickiest part of it was that no one told me um, that that like my nor my mother nor my father told me, and so there were all these questions about why they didn't tell me, right? And I think some of it was kind of leftover shame for my dad, right? He really fought through intense homophobia, external and internal, before he came out. And while he was living his life. And so I think some of it was shame for him. I don't know why my mom didn't tell me. I mean, I still don't know the answer to that. But once I found out and I, I began to tell people very slowly, very close people in my life. And these are my peers. So these are like other 15 year olds. And they are all they were all like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the whole section of the book is just like everyone being like, "Yeah, your dad's gay," and I'm like, "Wait, why am I the last to know?" Yeah, it's really something. Yeah, it's like everybody, everybody else knew, but you didn't know. Um, uh, it's it, it's such an interesting thing, you know. And I think there's a, there are a lot of people in your generation and mine too, who um, you know had parents who were gay. And um, um, they married because there really were no other options for them at that time. I mean, the the idea of being to being able to create your own family um, and such. Um, yeah, you got married to create a family. That's what you did. If you wanted yeah. to have a child, you uh, you got married and had a child. Uh, that was the way you did things. Now, of course, we're in a whole other whole other world which is very very interesting we're definitely going to talk about that for sure we i mean i'm glad we're in the world we're in now yes. where the whole definition of family has changed and there's you know families look all different kinds of ways right and so you know people are now when they hear family they're like okay let me ask ask some more questions because that could made up of any configuration of people. And of course, there's chosen family, which I touch on in this book, and which I think, you know, being queer and being kinky, um, those are two big things in those communities, you know, choosing our own families and our own support systems and our own, own loved ones who aren't necessarily related to us. Absolutely. And, and I know that one of the books that you've written, um, um, Opening Up, um, which is a guide to uh, creating and sustaining open relationships. Um, there's the non-monogamy aspect of it right there. Things really have changed. So as a sex educator, as a columnist, as a writer, as a uh, porn director and actress, how have things changed? How do, you, how do you see it? Where are we now in terms of our, you know, our, our cultural exploration of sex? Sometimes I feel like we are way ahead of the game. And then by virtue of things that have gone on over the past year, particularly, you know, the, the push to uh, uh, disallow women to control their own bodies. Where, where do you see us um, these days in terms of the cultural expression of ourselves? 
Yeah, it's interesting because we've seen these strides, right, in the visibility around queer folks, trans folks, kinky folks, non-monogamous people, right? We now have representations of all of those people, for better or worse, in mainstream media. Um, we, you know, we also, the internet sort of exploded and changed everything, right? I mean, when you were kinky back in the day, you had to like know someone in the kink community in, in real life oh, yeah. <laughs> in order to sort of access a world that was very much on the fringes of our society. Um, and now you can literally find people, you know, with two keystrokes and also find, find them in real life. I mean, every city, no matter what size it is in the country, has munches and play parties and weekend events and classes. I mean, it's the whole landscape of kink has certainly changed a lot. And, and, and of course, for, for just for sexuality and relationships in general. But then we're seeing right now, the most intense backlash I've seen in my lifetime right. against women, against queer people, against trans people, um, where people are trying to legislate us out of existence, quite frankly. Um, and like you said, bodily autonomy is at the center of um, reproductive rights and also transgender um, healthcare rights. And, and I think that that's, it's in response to all the evolution, right? It's in response to all the progress we've made. And we see throughout history, these things happen. It's like, we move forward, and then there's a backlash, and we move forward, and there's a backlash. But right now, I think it's pretty scary. Um, just where the country is in terms of folks who have you know, non-mainstream gender and sexual okay. identities. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of uh, uh, sexual uh, identities, I know Midnight Lady and I were talking a little bit uh, earlier about how we identify. Um, what were you saying, um, Lady? Oh, well, I was wondering, because uh, you're how you identified in the book was very clear. And, and I had to think upon my own uh, identification. And I, I'm a switch and I call myself bisexual. But really what I say is I'm greedy. <laughs> I'm greedy because I want top and bottom play. I want men and women. I want to experience as much of the genre and uh, the culture that I can. So I, I really, I'm just greedy is really what I am. But how do you, what do you identify as or how do you find uh, your identification is in terms of your yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Also, of course, it's always changing, right? Um, I identify as queer or queer dyke. I identify as kinky, uh, consensually non-monogamous. Uh, I get, I mean, I identify as a femme. That's that's what I consider to be my gender. Um, mm. In in the book, the book 
ends when I'm in my early 30s. So in the book, I mostly talk about bottoming and mm-hmm. um, being submissive, which is how I came up in the scene, right? I came up in the scene as a girl and as a submissive. And right around the time this book ends, I really found my inner dominant. And I was dominant for, I identified strictly as dominant for 15 years. Um, So, and I really resisted both switching or even thinking about calling myself a switch. Um, I just found the dom role so powerful and Mm. so natural to me that I thought, okay, this is who I am forever and ever and ever. Um, And so it wasn't really until a few years ago that I thought, hmm, does this mean like I never want to bottom again? Uh, Does this mean there's sort of no submissive energy in me? And, And I'm discovering that I do want a bottom. There is some sub energy in me. And so I much more identify as a, as a switch now. And I'm kind of dipping my toe back into bottoming, which is like terrifying and also really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have no labels. That's for sure. Or allow ourselves, because I, I can relate to what you're saying, you know, as, as a dominant woman, just the idea, oh my God, and, and definitely don't want to say it in public or God forbid at a munch or at an event that, oh yeah, I might be interested in doing something like that. Oh no. But <laughs> the thing is, is that nobody's locked into anything. And I think you make that really, really, really clear uh, in the book. When we, when you talk about, um, um, you know, the femme, the femme dyke. Um, I've read a lot of um, Patrick Califia's stories and Carol Queen's stories. And one of my absolute favorite of Carol Queen, I think is the, the 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 leather femme the uh, leather daddy and the femme yes oh man i it, don't even know if that's in print anymore or i you, have it right over here <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think that that's even in print anymore that was such a classic because like no one had ever written about a relationship like that oh it was um, so yeah and so, there's so more so to it than just the hotness. Because <laughs> as you say, there was a relationship there. Because a lot of times we tend to, you know, when people tend to identify one, one way, we're kind of like afraid to even go there, you know. Um, but boy, you went there. No question about it. <laughs> well, that makes me think also um, just of my interest in daddy play. Yeah. So because... Back then in the book, there's a lot of discussion of daddy play. And, you know, it's a really sort of fascinating thing in my own brain that I had a queer father and that I'm into leather daddy play, right? It's it's sort of like, you know, there's no subtext. There's no, it's a one-to-one, <laughs> yes. it's a one-to-one uh, comparison. And so, um, and that was a really like formative part of my, uh, sexuality, especially my kink sexuality. Um, and, and it's like, it's a little bit of a mind fuck for me as someone with a queer dad to do daddy play. But, um, there is something so powerful about it as a dynamic, as a power exchange, um, as a, as a space to 
really explore some of these sort of deep instinctual needs and wants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you know, that, that people are going to find in reading your book, particularly uh, our Gen Z and our millennial readers, and I'm sure you're going to have a load of them, is that uh, nothing's off, off limits, you know? Well, except for the stuff that's off limits. But it is so wonderful to be able to e express these these feelings, these desires. You find somebody who's, you know, in the same headspace as you are. Wow. Talk about liberating. It's just, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. It really is. I, I want to talk a little bit about something that is li liberating, and that's losing one's virginity. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was just, wow. I was just... <laughs> Yeah, this chapter, just for the record, I just want to say, first of all, I don't use the term losing my virginity because okay. I fucking hate that term. What are we going to say instead? Yeah, no, well, here, here's a couple things. Okay. Like, the, the substitute, first of all, I'm not losing anything, right? And right. it just feels steeped in the patriarchy and sexism and misogyny and... And, um, and there's just a whole social construction around it. I mean, it just has so much baggage. Now, people are using the term making your sexual debut Ooh. but but for queer folks that's also problematic okay. you know why because what we still attach to virginity and sexual debut is vaginal yeah. intercourse right i mean i made my sexual debut when i was about five years old when i began a sexual relationship with myself and then of course you know had sex and fooling around and all these things that were not intercourse with uh, girls and boys growing up. So I, I don't even, I don't even think sexual debut is right. And yet there is this thing, right? That's like hanging over us. And I sort of can't not write about it without <laughs> falling into these traps. But I will also say that is probably one of the most controversial chapters in the book. And I, I do. I know why. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, I don't know if we should like spoiler alert or not, but. Oh, I don't think we should do the total okay. spoiler alert. Okay. Right. right I just right, think. Lady, we won't do a total spoiler alert. I mean. Not everybody's the, experience is a good one either, by the way. You know, absolutely. And I had a positive experience and I'm looking at it through a certain lens of the few people who've read the book you know, people have different interpretations of that. And people are going to have a different read of some of the power dynamics in that relationship. And I think it's all valid. However, anyone wants to read something is valid. Um, and I, I sort of look forward to people, if people want to question me about that, if people want to say, you know, I think it was this, I don't think it was that. Um, I think I anticipate that. And I still wrote about it because it really is what happened to me and it was formative, obviously. Um, so yeah, I think people will have different takes on it. Right. I know, uh, I know for a fact that my coming out mm -hmm. or my first penis and vagina sexual experience, I cried through the whole thing. Um, it was not a good experience. I was with a man twice my age. Um, I later come to understand decades later that, that I had sexual trauma in my past. And, and so it's not surprising. Uh, but when I was reading your experiences in the book, and I was almost a little jealous um, 
because you came to it in such an easy way and it just it it seemed like you really embraced your sexuality and and in a way that was positive and affirming and just awesome and i was a little jealous because i'm like hmm, i didn't have that experience i i didn't have that experience um but now i, mean, I, I why yeah i mean i i think we all have like different personal experiences and different histories but i will say our society does not set us up to have great sexual experiences especially no. people assigned female at birth especially people socialized as women um, there are all these expectations about gender roles, about how we're supposed to behave, about how we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to like, what we're not supposed to like. Um, and so we're like the system kind of sets us up to be disempowered, I think. Yes, often. absolutely. Because, you know, the system sets us up to be, um, to not have enough information about our own bodies, yeah. to not prioritize our pleasure. Um, to not explore or experiment, you know, I think there are these really rigid ideas about how we're supposed to behave and then also how masculine and men are supposed to behave. And so it gets us into, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people have negative experiences growing up because of all those, because of all those reasons. Um, you know, I, I mean, when I traced my whole history, I sort, because people always ask me, like, how did you turn out to be you? You know, did you grow up, like, on some really progressive commune? Did you have, like, a sex therapist as a mom? Or, you know, did you have just this amazing sex, positive sex education? And I'm like, no. I mean, I had a very average sort of experience, which is I had one class, not even a semester. I had one single class, health class, gave me no information whatsoever about my body. And yeah. I was sort of left to fend for myself, like a lot of people. And unfortunately, it's like 25 years later, and that's still fucking happening. Yeah. That is still yeah. happening is that we aren't educating kids, and they are in the dark about going into these partnered sexual experiences. So when I trace all that sort of happened in my life, I, it, it begins to make more sense, like how I turned out this way. <laughs> but I also think that I'm just sort of missing, I never internalized the sexual shame that our culture heaps on us in copious amounts through okay. every possible institution. I mean, I talk to people on a daily basis with so much sh sexual shame that they can't get their needs met, that they can't explore what their fantasies really are, that they can't yeah. share it with a partner, that they feel like they're going against their religion. Um, and so I, I, for some reason, don't have sexual shame. Now, that said, I have shame about other things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. To shame. I just don't have sexual shame. Yeah, nobody gets off scot free, right? For well, sure. right. For sure. It's I, just I love. It's amazing. Go ahead. Go ahead, lady. No, I I love this section in the book. Um, there are so many sections in the book that were completely relatable to me and, and my experience in my life. But one of them was absolutely hysterical. Was you got your sex ed from the joy of sex? Because back then, back in the eighties. There was no computers. There was no internet. 
you went to uh, Barnes and Noble or you went to Big Dalton or these bookstores and you bought the jo the joy of sex or you bought the playgirl uh, and and that's how I learned about sex because you know I got two words from my mother I got don't just don't don't what just don't that was it um, that really wasn't really wasn't very helpful or clear. <laughs> Um, so I had to rely on the bookstore and smuggling it into my house and hiding it, you know, in the most remotest place in my room that I could possibly think of to learn, oh, oh that's what men do. They put it where? And, and, and it's supposed to feel good? <laughs> But the thing about the joy of sex, so I, my mom had the joy of sex. It was out on the bookshelf and I, you know, borrowed it and she never said anything, right? So it was this thing where I was like, she didn't say, oh, if you want to check out any of these books, they are great resources for sex. She didn't say any of that. She just didn't say anything when it like left the bookshelf and didn't come back for, I don't know, years. Um, but, the, but I have to admit that the joy of sex, you know, it, we can critique the joy of sex, but in that moment, my takeaway from that book was these people look like they're having fun. Yeah. yeah. The energy is there. They look connected. I mean, this looks fun. Yeah. 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 It really Why would I not yeah. want to do it? It seems yeah. fun. Yeah. You know, so, and I know that that's not an experience a lot of people have. Some people see porn for the first time. I mean, I can imagine nowadays your first image of people having sex could be disturbing, could be alarming, um, could be a turn off. So people have access to all kinds of porn now. And it, you know, those first images that we see, we definitely begin to sort of build on that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I remember telling my son who was uh, preteen, and I, we walk around with little porn studios in our pockets, little porn, you know, watch porn 24-7 in your pocket, in your hand. So I had to, I had to explain to my son who was preteen, but I'm not stupid. He's got porn in his phone, you know, like. No, and, and listen, that's the other thing. People are having sex and exploring stuff at younger ages than we were. Yes, people and not people. Even the like fast people. People were not having sex at twelve in in my school in my community. That just wasn't a thing, right? And and they're doing it earlier and earlier, which means the conversation has to start very early and continue. Yes, and so I explained to him that I said, porn is kind of like watching an action movie. You know, the car jumps off the roof, slides through the next building, and goes down. And I said, that's all very exciting, isn't it? I said, but that's not real. I said, those porn actors look like they're just doing this thing, but it's really, no, he has not been fucking her for 45 minutes. It, physically, the man's penis will give out usually before 45 minutes. Well, not if you use Viagra. I mean, these guys, you know, the, if these guys are using, I've seen someone fuck for like an hour and a half. 
and oh still God. have a hard dick. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I was just like, I was like, well, that's, that's not really real, honey. You know, those aren't the sorts of things that you want to do. You know, they take breaks that you don't see. They're off camera. They're smoking a cigarette. They're getting a drink. And then they go back and they tape some more. Um, I just didn't want you to go into your first sexual experience thinking you had to stay hard for 45 minutes, you know, <laughs> because that's what you saw in porn. And, you know, so then it was, right. you know, having those conversations. But I, I remember in the book, too, when you had done the Women's Guide to Anal, that you were very nervous um, about doing the the videos and recording the videos and and it seemed to me like after reading this though that you warmed up to it and that you were really able to find your way um could you speak more about how you found your way from being nervous to enjoying it and confident in it you know i think it was a, a combination for me of like utter excitement, fulfilling a fantasy, and then also, oh my God, can my body do this? You know, I talk about how when most people enter the porn industry, they sort of like start very slowly and work their way up. No one enters the porn industry in like a 13-person gangbang, which is what I did. Like, I that's the first time I ever made a porn. And it's, you know, it's like, it, 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 today, it's even bananas, like by today's standards, like it's bananas. And so I have written about this gangbang and this film before in, in various ways, but I haven't gone into the complexities of it and the nuance of it. Mm. Um, I felt like I wasn't ready to reveal that. And also... I am sort of fighting a war against anti-porn feminists who yes. say that mm. porn is exploitative, it's demeaning, it's degrading, it's abusive. And I didn't want to give them sort of more fuel for the fire. When in mm. fact, I think my discussion of this is very nuanced. But of course, they're going to sort of, you know, they might grab it out of context and be like, look what happened. Um, and so, and that's the sort of fascinating thing about that scene, that movie is that it was a microcosm of like every single thing. There was like every kind of person, there was every kind of interaction, every kind of power dynamic, every kind of sexual activity, you know, it was all happening. And there were really high notes and there were some low notes. Sure. And certainly when I began, when I began to have the, all that group sex, it was just, it was nothing but fun. It was like pure joy. These people are professionals. They can, they fuck for a living. They are so good at it. Um, and then as we went on, there was a particular performer who I had some misgivings about. And ironically, he's actually gone on to become a huge international star, but that was one of his first movies. Um, so interesting. Uh, and so I sort of had a little, I, I, I had a moment where I didn't know if I could keep going in the scene. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I had kind of doubts and voices in my head and, you know, the voice saying like, just keep going. And the other voice being like, no, 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 this doesn't feel right. And so, um, you know, to me, what that scene is about is support 
women supporting women. To me, what made that possible was that I had these women who, by the way, one was like a role model, an yeah. icon. Yeah. Are you talking the about Nina Hartley? Yes, Nina yes. Hartley. Yes. And the yes. other Absolutely. was a practical stranger to me, right? right? I'd met her the day before. Um, and I felt like they rallied around me and they were like, you are safe, you are powerful. like, And that's what made it possible. I think that um, when we, other women lift you up, when other women support you um, and can empathize with you, right? It's It can be a beautiful thing. It really can. And so to me, when I read back the whole scene, my takeaway is they created a safe space for me. They, they that, helped me. That definitely comes through. And it comes through from watching the film as well, although I have not seen it in a very, very long time. Well, guess what? Breaking news. I haven't told anyone about this, so you're getting the exclusive. <laughs> Evil Angel is remastering the film. It's the 25th anniversary. And the coding back then was like, whatever. So they're remastering the film. We're going to have a big press release about it. And people, you know, if they read the book and think, Hey, uh, I want to see this movie that you know Tristan writes about for about three chapters. Um, you can now, and I'll give you the link um, when we get it all together, which will be available sometime in mid-September. So Fabulous. it will be good timing for us, and I'll give it to you. Yeah. Now I have to say, myself personally, I do. I do relate to you know the uh, anti-porn uh, women. Uh, I, I'm an old school feminist. I. I, uh, you know, marched down Fifth Avenue with Kate Millett and a whole bunch of other people back. Yes, 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 I'm that old. But in any event, I, I understand where they're coming from, but I have never felt that way. To me, being a sex worker is a very, very special um, description. It's a very it takes a very special kind of a person. And to me, I've never discriminated against anybody who was a pro dom or uh, um, a porn star. Or and I used to go to the you know the the, the big uh, events at the Javits Center where everybody was there, and you could get your picture taken with whoever it was. And the first time I came upon your um, uh, your video of um, the the Women's Guide to Animal Sex was at I do believe a big event like a test fest or something along those lines, and yeah. I couldn't wait to get it. Yeah, my first. Right, right. You too, right? Yeah, I mm -hmm. couldn't forget it because um, uh, a guy I was dating at the time was just nuts about Nina Hartley. So that's what that's what got me looking at it. And then, oh gosh, when I took it home, I said, "Oh, can't wait!" Called him right away. I got it. I got the tape. We have to watch it. We loved it. We absolutely loved it. And that's where I'll end. But nonetheless. No, it was it was just absolutely wonderful. But there are a lot of women who I think are very confused. And um, in terms of does it empower women to be porn actresses or does it not? Does it take advantage of them? I have to I have to add my two cents in here as well, because first time I played with a woman, it was, you know, just this epic moment in my life I'd never played with played with plenty of men never played with a woman before and I was and she came as a part and parcel of this 
man that I was bottoming to. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'll try it out. And the first time and we played and it was like zero to 60 in my sex. It was like, whoa, baby. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I might like women. I might like women. And then I found your video and, and I really got this this sense of empowerment that you were hoping that women would get what was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. This is, and, and I mean, I must've played that tape so many times that it broke. Like the, you know, the VHS tape broke. Like I played it that many times. Um, and I said, Oh, we got to try this now. We got to do, well, well, she did that. So we got to try that next. And, and, and then she did this other thing. We got to try that too. So yes, it, it, it is very empowering. And women need to step into their dominance and step into their, Hey, I need this. I like this. Yeah. I need this. And, and, I have vanilla friends and they, you know, they like to hear a little vicarious living going on there. Mm -hmm. And and she's like, oh, anal. Oh, that's so disgusting. Blah, blah, blah. I said, have you ever tried it? She's like, no, 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 no. I was like, you have no idea what you're missing. You have no idea what you're missing. It's awesome. Yeah. And then I saw her, you know, the, the tape and, 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 the book and the, and oh my god i had everything i think you've ever written uh, or recorded uh, on any level so we you know we have oh, i to, love that story so much <laughs> we have to when you put it out in the world you don't know what people are doing with it you don't know you know how it's affecting them i just i love that story <laughs> uh, we wonderful we're just you know you were my idol you were my icon back in the scene and i even met you once at an event because you had you were doing a beginner's guide to anal sex or, or anal sex class and i was like oh my god she's so hot and and i just started liking women and i was just like oh my god she's so hot there you go oh my god she's so hot and the anal and i was just a little yeah, bit of a finger right there. You get the 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 pony play butt plug out of her butt but <laughs> right <laughs> we, have a, we have an inordinate amount of penises here yes we <laughs> certainly do we certainly we don't call ourselves two kinky women for nothing for sure uh <laughs> just i wanted to to tell you how much i liked the juxtapositions that you did with your father's life and then yours you know, um, I like how you you pluck something out because I I, I think um, when people read the memoir, they're going to see that a lot of it comes from your dad's own memoir, uh, unpublished memoir that he did, um, and he was a very good writer. And uh, those those pieces that you 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 say or you say something about yourself and then you bring up the juxtaposition of his uh, experience, very very similar experiences. They're very very effective. Must have been difficult to pick pieces out and say, yeah, right. I would think so. Not yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the most unique parts of the book, and also one of the most difficult, which is that. As I sat down to write the book, I read his memoir, which which was never published, about his early life. Um, 
And his early life, again, was marked by physical and emotional abuse um, from his mother, mm-hmm. was bipolar, but undiagnosed, and a mm-hmm. tremendous amount of homophobia. Like homophobia wasn't like a general thing. It was like in his household at dinner, people love to make homophobic jokes. People love to make fun of people by by calling them gay. I mean, it was it was pretty intense. And of course, that that impacted his ability to see even come to terms with his own sexuality and come out. Um, and I think, you know, th- it's the story really of two generations of queer people from the same family. Mm. And him coming out in the 70s versus me coming out in the 90s was pretty different. I mean, yeah. in 20 years, things had changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important to see that progression. You know, it's important to also honor all the people who came before us, right? And and the fact that I had, I could see queer role models around me. I mean, it wasn't like Will and Grace, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race. We weren't there right. yet. Right. We weren't, Melissa Etheridge wasn't even out yet. Um <laughs> But I knew, I knew queer people, both in real life and uh, in, in the sort of mainstream society. And that was very different from my father. My father really had an intense struggle in order to come out. And I, well, to give people a sense of my coming out, um, the chapter of my coming out is called My Closet Has No Door. <laughs> Great. So it was much different, much different than my dad. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting when you think about all of the people um, who came before the generations that the three of us represent. Although I think that Midnight Lady and and uh, and and you, Tristan, are are very similar in in generation. I'm a baby boomer, but when we think about you know all of the people people we knew, family members, uh, people like the guy who lived next door. It was, you know, pretty obvious and he couldn't come out. And the, you know, my school teacher who was the most wonderful guy in the world and was living with his mom always. And uh, the way he spoke and the way he walked, but he couldn't come out. He had to pretend that he had a relationship with the gym teacher, you know, that kind of thing. And, oh, the gym teacher. Yeah. Like, That's a good cover story. I don't know about you, but my gym teacher was the dykiest butchest woman I ever saw. I had her older sister as my gym teacher. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It just, wow. Things, this is like going going back to what we were saying before about how things have changed and how things haven't changed. But it gives you a a good deal, I think. It gave me a good deal of sympathy to the the people and also the very, very famous people uh, in this world. Famous good and famous bad people who obviously were tortured. Tortured by public and by their own their own guilt and shame and all that kind of stuff and at least we've moved on to that and we've got to keep hold of that now because there are powers that be who would like to take it right away from us that's 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 for sure but what one of the things that 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 I really um, I really uh, enjoyed reading about and and found absolutely fascinating was the move that you made to um, uh, to, to Los Angeles. We were talking before about coming out and that changed you in so many ways. I mean, here you had been in Connecticut and in Long Island, New York, and now, you know, you were uh, a dyke, you were an activist, 
and then you you talk about the relationship you had with Jen, and um, it's it's a wonderful part uh, in the in the book talking about Jen, uh, you know, uh, and how you how you became enmeshed in activism in the San Francisco of of the eighties because you know people in my generation think you know after the summer of love it all ended in San Francisco right, but of course it didn't. And this is where a lot of what um, has become very acceptable today got started. That's yeah, so it was actually in L.A. Um, and I became a, a member of Queer Nation in right. 19, in the early 90s. Um, and, yeah, I feel like, well, first of all, my relationship with Jen is, is, so, is such a huge turning point for me. It's so critical. Um, she and and ironic or ironically or not, I mean, we're still in touch, you know. And and she used to say, you know, I I I make fun, you know, I make fun of her because I'm like, you're you you made me like you made me like this. It was yours, your fault. And she was like, I don't know, you kind of like took to it very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but Queer Nation LA has just restarted in the year 2023. Wow, and fighting local battles here. For example school districts that are banning books in their libraries, school districts that are having huge fights over, can we even acknowledge Pride Month mm. you know, for our students in our school? Can we put up a flag? Can we just do stuff we do for all sorts of special months, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and now I live in LA, right? So, th- so I had spent the summer in LA and that with Jen, and that's um, how I got involved with Queer Nation, and that's like 1991. Here we are in 2023. I live in LA now. Queer Nation has been um, rebooted, and, you know, for good reason, as we've been talking about throughout this, right? Yeah. We're really under attack, and and so it makes sense. The timing makes sense. Um, but it was it was a really pivotal part of queer history for me, and it again really shaped me. Um, just sort of stepping, I mean, stepping outside of my very small community in Long Island and going to Wesleyan, where there was all kinds of students. It was racially diverse. It was ethnically diverse. It was diverse in terms. There was a little bit of class diversity, although mostly rich people, um, and it opened my eyes to an entire new world and then getting to LA and seeing the folks who are doing this grassroots organizing queer people who are out in high school, um, HIV positive, uh, gay men who were loud and proud and out. Um, it was a revelation. I mean, it really, it really was. And, and again, it, I mean, it shaped me that that particular chapter is, um, excerpted on a website called residence 11 just google residence 11 so if people want to hear about my time in queer nation um and you know now that i live in la there are several members of queer nation who live here um and who i'm in touch with all this time I, i like went to the leather bar like a month ago and saw judy whose real name i use who was like you know, the ambassador and sort of like took us under her wing and she is like still fighting the good fight and she's still around and amazing. Um, Yeah. So it's been, that's been a real full circle moment for me. 
Yeah, being the fight is the fight is definitely not over. That's no. for sure. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, one of the things also that 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 I enjoyed reading about too um, was uh, you described yourself in a very very good way. I think I think that um, Midnight Lady wants to ask a specific question about how you described yourself um, in your memoir. I think it was called a breakthrough lover. Was it you or was it somebody else who was the breakthrough lover? It was both. It was both. Do you, lady, do you have a specific question? Well, no, I was just, I, I liked hearing about the person that you turned the breakthrough lover. It's someone that had introduced you to your first anal scene and then your first S&M scene and your first, you know, and it happened to be that this breakthrough lover introduced you to so many things whereas in my spotty past it was like well i did one thing with one person i did something with some other person you know and so i didn't have someone that i did so many firsts with so i thought i found that very interesting um that so many of your firsts was with one person yeah, and so that's, again, why Jen is so significant. Um, you know, the thing is, she was an amazing sex-positive person who was like, hey, this is the menu. And the menu she offered was like that menu at the diner, right? It's like, how can they cook all of these things well? How can they have all this food in the back in the kitchen? I mean, this is so, this is pages and pages and pages and pages. You know, and it's like, wow. So... She, you know, she was up for anything. She was into experimenting. She was kinky. She was sex positive. And, and, and only later did I sort of coin this term for myself of a breakthrough lover, because a breakthrough lover to me is someone who takes you places that you never thought you would go. I mean, not that you didn't even consider like were, right. were available to you. Right. Right. And uh -huh. it changes you. It fundamentally changes you. Um, and that's, and then I, and then I have a relationship subsequently where I become the breakthrough lover for one of my lovers, um, Riley in the book. And that is like a whole other experience being on the other side of it and seeing someone really like come into their own as, as kinky and, and sort of want, had wanted to explore these things, but like didn't have anyone to do it with or anyone to talk about it with. And I, but, but the good news is I've had breakthrough lovers throughout my, you know, sexual life, throughout my lifespan. Um, you know, they, just when you think you, you know it all and you've done it all and you've sort of tried it all, right? <laughs> Someone comes along, you know, some, but I had definitely a special play partner like a decade ago who, um, really pushed me to do things and not push non-consensually, just like, right would bring up these things like, hey, I'm into this. And I'd be like, hmm, oh, sure. Wasn't on my yes or maybe list. <laughs> but, um, but, let's, but let's give it a go. And then realizing that I enjoyed it and realizing that it brought something out differently. I mean, this is like my evolution as a mommy. You know, I, if you told 20-year-old me, hey, Tristan, you're going to be in a mommy play, you know, when you're 40, I'd be like, that is literally impossible. Like, I am not a mommy. I don't want to be a mommy to anyone. What are you right. talking about? Yes. Right? And so these breakthrough lovers, I think, are really important in our own sexual evolution, our own sexual liberation. 
um, because they, they sort of move the goalpost, right? Mm-hmm. And, and your change, and, and because you now know this thing about your desire, about maybe how your body works, about this pleasure, um, you can't go back. You can't put it back in the box. That's right. Mm. right. Can't put the genie back in the bottle. No. I'm afraid my breakthrough lover, um, if, if, if I can describe it that way, was probably, again, I'm showing my age, the AOL chat rooms. But if you can imagine, okay? No, I can imagine. Let me tell you. People, you know, this was the first opportunity for people to communicate with other folks right. about the sexual fantasies, about kink. Those chat rooms were yeah. fire. They were fire. No, they were. They really I mean, were. People yep. came out as kinky. People discovered their an entire fantasy life and that someone else was into it. You know, not <laughs> that whole sense of not feeling like alone. You know, still right. people to this day say, hey, That's I want right. to tell you my kink. Uh, you've probably never heard of this or you probably don't know anyone who's into this, but let me tell you. And it's like, of course I've heard of it. And of course exactly. I know a million people into it just because of my life and the people I've been exposed to. But, um, but people still feel alone and isolated. And those AOL chats, all of a sudden it was like, wait, I'm into the, you're into this. Ah, <laughs> that's, that's a revelation for people. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, validation. And yeah. When I, so I, my first husband was as white bread as they come. He was as vanilla as they come. I had always been kinky, period. Like, even as a child, I was kinky. I was knew I was kinky, my fantasies. And, and I was the kid that the boys tied up, you know, the, yes. the neighborhood, you know. They, always a clue. <laughs> you know, they would, I would let them tie me to the tree and, yeah. and, you know, all these things. And so then we got divorced and I bought a computer. And I got on AOL. And all of a sudden, it was like this explosion. I said, wait a minute. You mean there are other people that like what spanking and stuff? Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. They're, they're, they, they meet at like places and do the things. So that's how I fell into the scene. That's right. Was that's right. picking up, you know, uh, on an AOL chat room that there was a party uh not for everyone was the name of the group out of jersey in the late 90s um and it was just like my whole world just opened up it it was like someone had just you know unlocked this door and behind the door was this whole new world where um my self-esteem just skyrocketed because people wanted to play with me and people wanted to be with me and people wanted me to top them and people wanted to have sex with me. And and I had never had that experience. And I was considered myself much of an ugly duckling. Um, So to come into the scene through, through this, this, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that people not only liked doing this, but got together in person to do it. So, you know, that, that first plate party, you know, your, your eyes are like, oh, and you're, you know, oh my God, (laughs) and you can't get enough. You can't look at, you know, like everything all at once. Particularly Um, for a greedy girl like you. Oh, yes. oh. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I wasn't too greedy then. I started out as a bottom. 
uh, hetero bottom. Right. And then it was like, then I was a bisexual bottom. And I was like, ooh, you introduced me, Mistress Gabrielle. You introduced me to topping. There you go. And then it was like, ooh, I like this too. So I think that is what's kind of interesting about this term, breakthrough lover, is that we are probably, without even knowing it, doing that kind of thing with the people that we date now. Mm-hmm. I'm in an open relationship, and so is uh, so is Midnight Lady. And the people that we see now, I know I'm going through something right now with, um, with um, one of the people that I'm dating, and um, all of this is brand new to me, totally brand new. I was just never into this way of doing things and i'm finding it somewhat intriguing so when i read that breakthrough lever i said "Ooh, i like that maybe i'm going to start using that term i really like it let's talk just a tiny bit about about san francisco so you came out as a kinky femme in, in no this san- is in la 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 okay and then you went to san francisco oh that oh mm-hmm. see i was even in denial i was like there's nothing about San Francisco in the book. Okay, right. There's. I did live in San Francisco for six months. It's pretty yeah. bad. But then you left. You left. You left pretty quickly because you found out that Dad was sick. Yeah. And that's when you found out that Dad that Dad had AIDS. And you segue at that point into uh, a part of Dad's memoir when he had a very bad breakup with the person that he was with because you have a bad breakup when you leave San Francisco. And it really, really, really changed a lot of things. That whole situation with dad when he was sick, uh, with your going to be with him, uh, with with his partner, with the uh, intense pain of finding that he has, you know, uh, HIV and then he's going to pass from AIDS. Very, very, very difficult time, the going back and forth. But how did you survive it? What did you what did you call? What did you call up? How did how did you make it? I mean you got you got a dog. I, I know that you have a marvelous dog who ate your shower curtain and <laughs> You had you had uh, a landlord who was an evangelical Christian, and you were working for a porn publication after. But you were affected by this. How could you have not been affected? How did you re- how did you resolve it? How did you come back to who you were at that at that particular point? So hard for you. Yeah, you know, I think what the hardest thing for me was is that I didn't have adults in my life who were interested in taking care of me right so so my dad is dealing with tremendous illness and pain right so i'm not expecting support from my dad but there were other people in the picture my mom uh, my dad's lover other adults and i didn't necessarily feel like cared for by them um i felt sort of infantilized by my dad's lover And I didn't feel like, you know, aside from like one therapist at the time, I I didn't feel very supported, right? And, and, And to have your parent die and go through this, I mean, to be in your early 20s and have this experience, you know, I mean, I knew nothing about grief. I, I knew nothing about dying. I didn't know anyone who had died. And, um, I just didn't even have, I didn't have the resources, um, to sort of process what was happening. And I think that's part of why the depression hit me 
so, so hard is that the whole thing kind of knocked me over like a train. And I'm not sure how I survived. <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I feel incredibly resilient. Um, and I and I feel like that has been a theme throughout my life. But certainly, you know, as a 52-year-old woman, I'm so much better equipped to deal with relationships right. and my mental health and death and grieving and all that stuff. Back then, I didn't have any skills and no one was willing to sort of take me and hold my hand and say, you know, let me be there for you throughout this. Mm -hmm. Except for, I mean, some of my peers, but again, my peers are the same age. They right. don't necessarily, right. you know, have, they're not necessarily equipped to, to do it. Um, so, I mean, you know, in answer to your question about how I survived one of the most difficult um, inst instances is probably, uh, it's this is the title of a chapter, the lesbians upstairs. These two lesbians who lived upstairs uh, in my, my dad's building, uh, they, you know, I was again, I was their friend's daughter. Right. And they went me. all the way for you. They did. They didn't know me that well. And they went above and yeah. beyond. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how to get in touch with them. Mm. You know, if I could, I would I would send them this book and I would say, listen, this is like this was a pivotal moment. And you guys really out of the kindness of your own hearts, yeah, were there were there for me, like when I had no one. When I had no Extremely one. touching. Extremely, extremely touching. The power of friendship. And they risked yeah. a lot on your behalf. Yes. So it was just very, very touching and very, very wonderful. Again, women supporting women, which is such a oh, wonderful aspect of, of, of what you write. Uh, and your mom as well. Your mom was, was so good. Was so yeah. good. I mean, you know, I, have, I had a difficult relationship with my mom growing up. Mm -hmm. But what you can see, especially from that, is that she showed up. Yeah. She showed when when I was really in need, right. she showed up and she handled it. Right. Um she's an incredibly strong woman. And, you know, I'm happy to say that like I have the best relationship with my mom that I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And that really only happened in my forties. Isn't that wonderful? That is just, it's great to hear. That gives a lot of people hope, by the way. A lot of daughters of strong women gives them hope. <laughs> really. Yeah, no, I, I mean, for, for 40 years, we, we yeah. really struggled. And, um, and she's read the book. She's one of the only people who's read the book. Um, and she loves it. And, um, it's been, uh, meaningful and, 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 and healing. For us to go back over that time, it's just it's just a terrific, terrific thing. Um, what's next for you? I mean, we know we're publishing the book; it's coming out very soon, and uh, we're all looking forward to it. I was at a munch the other night, and I said, "Somebody I know has got a book, and somebody most of you people knows book is coming out." And I said, "Guess who it is?" And I told them, "Oh, everybody is just." everybody's really thrilled they truly truly are um because um 
it's it's wonderful to read something so heartfelt um, because most of us have been through something. It may not be that. It may not be this, but something uh, because we're you know we are we're survivors of one mm-hmm. way or another. So everybody's really excited about it. So what's next for you? Um, uh, yeah, so maybe this, a continuation of the memoir? Or yeah, so well, what I'll say is that because this is coming out October 1st, I'm going to be on tour in October. I will be in Milwaukee, Madison, Chicago, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. So look, look on my social media or look online if you're in any of those towns. Great. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching some kink workshops in Portland that are going to be really fun. And uh, yeah, and, then I'll, and I'll be in the Midwest and I'll be in the Pacific Northwest. Terrific. So I, I am working on a second memoir. Um, this would start again in my very early 30s and come up to the present. Um, this is a lot more complicated because I was partnered with someone, quite publicly partnered with someone for 15 years who is a very private person. And I'm really trying to balance out how to tell my story, which he is part of, gotcha. um, <laughs> without violating his privacy. It's pretty right. tricky. Right. And then I'm working on a new sex book. Whoa! I know, which I thought maybe I'd like never do again. But uh, the working title is uh, Transcendent Sex, your gu- the, A Guide to Your Erotic Liberation. And <laughs> I'm writing it with Lucy Fielding, who is a therapist and a sex educator on the East Coast. Um, it's, you know, it's the kind of book that almost precedes the sort of tips and tricks, right? So the thing is, there's a lot of books out there about techniques and yes. positions, and right? But this book begins with, like, who are you as a sexual person? You know, we ask people to communicate their needs and wants to partners all the time. What if you don't know what you need or you want, right? Mm-hmm. It sort of starts from the premise of let's uncover all of that because if you don't know and I know you two know this right before you know your sexual identity before you have developed it when someone asks you hey what do you want you don't necessarily know the answer it's great that someone's asking but I don't I haven't even developed my sexual self so this is really about kind of developing your own sexual self in service to then being able to kind of get, you know, the sex, the kinds of sex and the kinds of pleasure that you want. Right. I like that. I really do. And I think it's a good idea. I I think it's a great idea. Well, you've definitely left me with something. I'm not going to say losing your virginity ever again. I might say something like gaining your sexual expression instead or something along those lines. I'm going to come up with something. I mean, the first time you had vaginal intercourse, it's very clunky. We're not going to go with that. Yeah, true. (laughs) 
absolutely, absolutely. But um, I'm I'm so anxious for our audience and uh, to 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 pick up this memoir when it comes out because at the very least of things you've got to you've got to find out what this marvelous title. You're great at titles, by the way. Your chapter titles are great, and the title of the memoir is "A Part of the Heart Can't Be Eaten." I'm not going to say what that is, but when you read the memoir, you are going to figure it out and uh it's wonderful and and we left a lot of stuff up in the air because we were not going to be spoiling things and there's so many wonderful segments of the of the memoir that are so uh heartfelt that i want our our audience to really get in there and uh eat it up just like uh the other part that can be eaten. So in any event, I want to thank you so much, Tristan, for spending your time with us today. And I want to wish you all the luck in the world with the memoir. And we will be watching for all the other wonderful things that you're going to do, which I'm sure we can will. Can I just say, about. this is like one of the best interviews I've oh, had about so the book. You. You, oh. Not only were you like super prepared, but like you're so thoughtful and I feel like you really got what I was like trying to do with the book. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. You're just both like so, so thoughtful in thinking about these things um, and in thinking about sexuality and like, we need more conversations like this. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very oh, much. We will definitely so keep in touch. And uh, when the rest of the, uh, Things that you are so involved in happen, let us know. We're going to put you on our trusted friends page on, yes. uh, on the website. Does our one her wonderful infographic, which will encompass uh, this um, uh, interview today. Um, it's something that our subscribers get, and uh, we're very happy to do it for them. And uh, again, thank you so much, and we wish Ow. you the best of luck. Yes, and how, if people want to respond uh, or ask a question, how can they get in touch with you if they want to ask a question or um, they want to comment on something that, that they heard today? How can they find you, Tristan? Yeah, so um, they can email me through my website, tristanteramino.com. Just spell it vaguely how you think it's spelled, and, and Google will fill it in. Um, I'm also active on social media. I'm most active on Instagram. So that's where you'll find sort of up to date things about where I am, what city I'm in, what I'm doing. Um, and I do respond to DMs. All so right. uh, slide right in there. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. Wonderful. Have a great rest of the uh, year. Lots of luck on the publication. I know it's going to be terrific. And be well, stay well and play safe, right? Bye-bye, yeah. everybody.